Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Dealing with pests can be a pain. But relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. A Democratic president, writes Will Salatan, whose brother and I co-wrote a book of poems when we were in the fourth grade together, is standing up to Putin, and he's facing a Republican who would rather attack Mickey Mouse. Brilliant, Will Salatan, but unnecessarily narrow. The Republican, of course, is Ron DeSantis, Mr. Wokey Finoki Swamp, who was for Ukraine before he was against it. And more importantly, DeSantis's naive, isolationist, stupid claim that Ukraine is not among this country's vital national interests, who dismissed Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a territorial dispute, opened the door for even lesser men to charge through in what is clearly the next big fascist push in this country, the attempt to get America to betray Ukraine and serve Putin. Quote, the Ukrainians are being crushed, the retired Army Colonel Douglas McGregor said on Fox last night. Quote, their casualties are horrific. We have effectively seen the Russians destroy three separate armies built by the Ukrainians, and everybody is beginning to wonder what's really happening. None of which is true, but all of which lines up perfectly with what is being broadcast in Russia on Vladimir Putin's propaganda channel and for which Colonel McGregor should be recalled from retirement and court-martialed as an unregistered foreign agent. And it gets worse. Again, quoting this scum McGregor. The truth is coming out that this war was not started by Russia. What was it, sir? Lightning? That Russia begged us not to try and drag Ukraine into NATO. We ignored Russia, and Russia made it very clear that they were going to defend their national interest. All they wanted was neutrality for Ukraine. I hope McGregor was paid for this. I hope McGregor was paid for this by Putin. I hope he was paid a lot. I hope he can find somewhere to spend it all in hell. All of this was said, of course, to Tucker Carlson, who gave it his perfected, perplexed look of the dog being shown the card trick, and who, as I have noted previously here, would probably be described as a Russian asset, except who could ever think he's an asset to anybody. Carlson is almost certainly not being paid to say these things. His hatred of America, as it is currently constituted, especially as it is currently governed, is his only genuine emotion. He harbors grudges untold against so many minority groups and so many individual people that the only way he could fulfill vengeance for them is if he were running this country as dictator and don't think he has not wondered about how he might make that happen. 
And now we have to ask ourselves about a future less than two years hence. Not just Ukraine's part in that American future, but the rest of Eastern Europe, and thus the rest of Western Europe, and thus the rest of the West, like us. It is noon on January 20th, 2025. Trump has been inaugurated by hook or by crook, or he hasn't, and DeSantis has. Zelensky's resistance against the Russians is in year three, and Putin, though weakened, continues to commit extraordinary resources to his, quote, special military action. Several million Russian servicemen are dead, but they control much of Ukraine. And as Trump or DeSantis or somebody else takes the presidential oath of office here, Putin now simultaneously bombs Poland. And the new Republican president sends U.S. military resources to Poland? Putin? This is not a randomly chosen nightmare scenario, the end of a timeline that began with the form that Mr. DeSantis filled out for Carlson the other day. Poland's internal security agency has this week uncovered a network of Russian agents inside its country, it says, who were installing hidden cameras on those sections of Polish railway tracks that have become the main transit point for the delivery of weapons and ammunition bound for Kyiv from its Western allies. If this report is correct and the Russians are already even game planning sabotage or a less subtle attack on Polish territory and Putin can only retain power by trying to rebuild the Soviet Union, that theoretical about what we would do should he actually attack a NATO country stopped being an if and has started being a when. And suddenly it doesn't matter that much whether Donald Trump is paying the Russians back for the 2016 election, or if they did nothing about the 2016 election, or if he owes them billions, or if he's just doing it because he admires murderous dictators like Putin and would like to be one in his own self. This country could wind up allied with Russia in a war against Europe if the Republicans ever regain power. Of course, the likelihood that money is at the heart of this remains the likeliest bet. Federal prosecutors have been investigating Trump's ironically named Truth Social Company. Sure enough, what have they found? Two loans made to the company Trump Media wired through the Caribbean from two companies, and to quote England's The Guardian, that both appear to be controlled in part by the relation of an ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin. It is daunting to realize that Trump's malign, disloyal, treacherous, treasonous, anti-American influence will not end with an indictment or a conviction or an imprisonment, but only with a physical incapacitation or the fulfillment of that wish that ex-Republican Congressman Peter Meyer told The Atlantic he's heard from countless nominal Trump supporters, quoting Meyer, I can't wait until this guy dies, unquote. Even then, of course, Trump will merely become the martyr of his cult, or knowing them, they will believe he's actually still alive somewhere and he's just away for the moment planning strategy with JFK Jr. and JFK and Jesus and Princess Diana and Rush Limbaugh. It is almost impossible to believe that at this late date there could still be a new development in Trump's multi-pronged plot to overturn the 2020 election and overthrow democracy, yet here it is. And it's in Georgia, too where we have all heard the tape of the phone call begging Brad Raffensperger, quote, to find 11,780 votes as if they were so many bottles of gold spray paint. You may have heard about a second Georgia phone call by Trump to the Speaker of the Georgia House, David Ralston, to convene a special session in December 2020 at which Trump wanted Ralston to throw out Georgia's election and thus its electors and thus steal them from Biden and give them to Trump. It turns out that phone call was recorded as well. Five of the members of the extremely chatty special grand jury in Atlanta examining Trump's crimes there have confirmed they heard it. We don't know what's on it, but we do know the late Speaker Ralston said the day after that Trump demanded the special session and Ralston said it would be very much an uphill battle under Georgia law. And the question now is, why have we not heard this tape yet? 
And of course, if we are back in Georgia following my thread, we are now back in the native territory of the first member of the United States House of Representatives, whom some grand jury somewhere might actually be willing to indict purely on the basis of incalculable stupidity. Yes, it is Marjorie Trader Greene again, and she went to the border for a House Homeland Security Committee hearing, and then she leaked classified material. And when even it disagreed with her paranoid fantasies, she decided the witness and her committee was lying about it. In short, U.S. Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz said it was alleged that his agents had found an explosive device near the border with Mexico. He told the committee that agents had, in fact, found a duct tape ball filled with sand that was no threat to anybody unless you were to sit on it while you were wearing a bathing suit. A Fox, quote, news, unquote, contributor then explained that on January 18th, it was believed that a, quote, Mexican firecracker had been planted near the U.S. border, presumably by drug cartels. It turned out to be a duct tape ball filled with sand. That was not good enough for Special Agent Marjorie Trader Green. If the device in question was just filled with sand... Then why would Chief Ortiz tell me during his testimony that he was briefed about it in a secure location and couldn't comment on classified information? They don't brief the chief of Border Patrol in an SCIF about a ball of sand. They only brief us about dangerous things in classified briefings. It would be obvious to anybody except Barney Rubble's body double that the briefing and its classified nature was not to cover up the sand bomb, but to protect Border Patrol's detection abilities and its techniques and, see if this sounds familiar, to protect where our cameras are located. It is nice, however, to note that in her usual imbecilic, boastful way, she said Ortiz couldn't comment on classified information, that Marjorie Taylor Greene just confessed to divulging classified information, and she should be arrested for that and have her security clearance permanently stripped today. Of course, you're not going to hear any of this on Fox, quote, news, unquote, nor for that matter on CNN. And this is fascinating. Quinnipiac published a poll yesterday indicating that the nation has very strong opinions on the Dominion defamation case against Murdoch's propagandists. And it's almost entirely in one direction. 65% of everybody thinks Fox should lose that suit and be punished for defaming Dominion. 93% of Democrats feel so. 76% of people aged 18 to 34 of all parties. 67% of independents. Only one group disagrees. And you knew which group that was about 30, 40 seconds ago. Yes, it's the Republicans. And yet 41% of Republicans think Fox should lose the Dominion case. Yet Fox still is not the cable news outfit in the most trouble. The New York Post gossip page put out what was, even for them, a really squishy story that the new chairman, Chris Licht, whom when we were at MSNBC together, we all thought ate paste, might be fired by Labor Day. Both the Post and the website Puck now report that Licht had an unexpected guest at a meeting of 600 CNN managers the other morning. And by the way, CNN, 600 managers... There's your problem right there. The extra man at the meeting was David Zaslav, Licht's boss, who reaffirmed his commitment to Licht. The Post's headline on this story was originally, quote, boss of CNN parent says execs are all effing behind network CEO Chris Licht. But that headline was soon changed by the Post to, quote, boss of CNN parent defends network CEO Chris Licht, but admits he's gotten a lot wrong. And for the Post to back down on something like that, there was some grade four arm twisting somewhere late yesterday afternoon. Anyway, the Puck report quoted Licht as asking these 600 managers, there's your problem right there, CNN, asking the 600 managers to snitch on any employees who didn't like the new CNN. Writer Dylan Byers quoting Licht, it's incumbent on us to unlock that potential, to give people a sense of purpose. And if they don't take that, help them find something else, here or outside the company. Well, that's the Chris Licht we all used to know, Hatchet Man. 
Byers also reports the latest on CNN's new morning show, which I believe is titled Tire Fire with Don Lemon and the reporter who used to be from the Daily Caller who can't anchor and the utility infielder uh, Hoppy Pardlow or whatever her name is. This was what Licht broke up one of his only two successful primetime shows for. It is failing miserably. Don Lemon is very unhappy and making stupid mistakes on the air. The Daily Caller person, Caitlin Collins, is dreaming of moving back from New York to Washington and has fired her agent because she apparently just realized he's also Don Lemon's agent. And yeah, I fired him 18 months ago, too. Anyway, at a moment where everything I've been talking about here cries out for fearless, interpretive, analytical news, this Zaslav and Licht and CNN continue to be hell-bent on returning CNN to a kind of video stenographer's role which it never had, but which they have convinced themselves was its true time of greatness. Zaslav says this is Licht's destiny and his moment or something, and Puck quotes him as adding, he's gotten a lot wrong. We've gotten a lot wrong. We're all flawed. You bet your ass, Sonny. How flawed is summed up by particular imagery, which after I questioned it last night, Byers insisted was chosen very, very deliberately. Quote, Nearly one year in, it's clear that Zaslav still believes in his vision for CNN as a nonpartisan broadcast-style news digest and still believes that Licht is... Are you ready for the imagery? And still believes that Licht is his Captain Ahab. Now, I'll confess that I have not read Moby Dick all the way through since 1975. I haven't even watched the Gregory Peck movie where he's Captain Ahab in a, a year or two. But if my memory serves me, Captain Ahab finally finds Moby Dick and harpoons him, but he gets his foot caught in the harpoon rope. And before you know it, he's pinned up against Moby Dick's side and the whale goes underwater and drowns him and then turns around and accelerates straight towards the Pequod and rams it and cuts it in half and sinks it. And if this Zaslav is really out there with his captain and this version of the story is really called Moby Licked, then soon or late, the great white whale will be literally deplatforming Zaslav, and then when he and all the other sailors fall into the sea, Moby Dick will come back and eat all of them. Or Moby Licked. Call me Ishmael. My boat sank. The end. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. 
That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Still ahead on Countdown, slight format change for this edition, which I'll explain presently, but let me tell you something I promised not to tell first. One of the great scoops of my sports career, one that my boss had insisted I go get for him, happened when I had given up on the story, went to go get some pizza, and on the way home, I literally saw the guys at the center of the story yelling at each other about the story on the street. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. To Devore, California, and this is just terrible. The High Kill Shelter there is a pair of 14-week-old puppies, sisters, gorgeous shepherd husky mixes with haunting eyes, banshee and shenanigan. They have been there nine days, but they're already on the kill list because the shelter is full. Three-month-old puppies. They need our pledges to help a rescue save them, or they need a foster or an adopter near DeVore. You'll see them on my Twitter feeds, and your retweets alone could save their lives. I thank you, and Banshee and Shenanigan thank you. from the files of things I promised not to tell, and I recently went past the building, my second professional home, and I was flooded with my memories of a place called the RKO Radio Network. This is 1980, and I'm nearing my 22nd birthday, and I'm working real hard at one radio network run by the United Press International Wire Service in my second year and making around nearly $20,000 a year. And in September, a drunken manager had tried to get me fired, tried to fire me himself for being young. And I'll be damned if I can remember getting consecutive days off there. This was UPI in a nutshell. For my first few weeks there, I thought whoever had decorated the newsroom had found the floor tiles with the ugliest design pattern in history. And then finally, I saw a colleague grind his lit cigarette into that floor, and only then did I realize that was what the ugly design pattern was. Hundreds of ground-out cigarettes. Years and years of ground-out cigarettes in the tiles. Anyway, the main advantage to working at UPI was that everybody in what was then a flourishing radio business knew UPI, and thus they knew you, and they knew you were underpaid. The top all-news radio station in the country, WCBS in New York, had already asked if I might be a candidate for a coming opening in their sports department. The previous spring, I'd actually interviewed with two vice presidents at this thing, the yachtsman Ted Turner, who owned the Atlanta Braves, was going to try to start something he called Cable News Network. But they were not initially interested in me, and after meeting with them, I was certain they would never get it launched, let alone get an audience for it. I was working there literally 14 months later. I'd also been flown to Boston. Like they spent $55 on me by a radio station that really wanted me to do a morning sports shift for them. And they were offering $40,000 a year, twice my salary. And I was ready to do it. And I was sitting in the office in Boston trying to figure out where I could live and how late I could sleep and still get there in the morning. And then the news director said, now, except if there's a big story, you can do the afternoon sportscast from home over the phone, which is when I realized I was supposed to do the morning and the afternoon. I was essentially on the clock from 5 a.m. to 6 p.m., and the $40,000 would have had to go to my sister because the schedule would have killed me within three months. And then there was this RKO radio network. UPI was in the unique position of having RKO as a client, 
So RKO heard and used our stuff all the time. And also, they had from their beginning used our UPI feed as a kind of 24-7, constantly flowing, turned on spigot audition service. From the time I got to UPI in July 1979, it seemed like one radio person from UPI per month was hired away by RKO. Sometime in the early autumn of 1980, I was covering a New York Rangers game at Madison Square Garden, and the guy next to me smoking a cigar inside the garden, right in front of all the fans, turned out to be the sports director of this RKO network. In fact, he was the entirety of the RKO sports department. But we're doubling in size. I'm going to start doing weekend sportscasts, and I get to hire a new person to do the weekends. Mm, it's a union shop, so it's $51 a sportscast after. There's 10 a weekend, so you get uh, 22 for any dollars reports for uh, reports from the field, and, and you'd be my backup. 22 bucks from the field, and a guarantee of 510 a weekend. And you got to come in uh, one day a week uh, to book the stringers for the weekend games. Uh, that'd be free. But the guarantee is $26,000 plus those uh, $22 every time you file a report from the field. You interested? Well, I did some quick math. This was about 40% more money for about 40% less work. And there were no 5 a.m. to 6 p.m. schedules. When the sports director called me back a few weeks later to offer me the gig, I did not hesitate. His name, by the way, was Charlie Steiner. Charlie would later be a colleague of mine at SportsCenter, and then he did the Yankees games, and now he does the Dodgers games, and he's been a friend for 42 years. The network itself was also space-age shiny and new, and it had carpets. Whereas UPI had the stubbed-out cigarettes decor, RKO was literally the first radio network in this country to deliver all of its programs to its stations via satellite. No more scratchy, hyper-expensive phone lines. RKO came through crystal clear, and that was our pitch to the stations. All the newscasts, all the sportscasts, all the features ended with the same tagline. Via satellite, this is the RKO radio network. And then a spot for Hubba Bubba Gum. For my first few weeks there, part of the job also included doing two sportscasts a day for RKO's local station, WOR. The first time I went up in the elevator to their studio, it dawned on me that it was the exact same studio where seven years before I had been invited by the great comedians Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding, along with my dad, to sit and watch in amazed appreciation as Bob and Ray did their show on WOR. So basically, as of December 1980, I had accomplished all of my childhood goals. The only problem with the place was the location. RKO was on the southeast corner of Times Square, probably the low watermark in the history of Times Square. It was in 1440 Broadway at the corner of 40th Street. There was a back door at 41st Street and 6th Avenue right across from Bryant Park. On those occasions, when I filled in for Charlie Steiner on the weekdays for his morning show, which they would tape overnight... I would often be at the studios until 2 or 3 a.m., and my walk home was a, a little sketchy. In point of fact, I would not walk home. I would run. I mean run, run, from that back door at 41st and 6th. I'd pass Bryant Park on my right as fast as I could, past all the drug dealers and other folks, then dart on the north side of 42nd between 6th and 5th. And once you got to that corner of 5th and 42nd, you were back in civilization with good street lights and other people on the streets, no matter how late the hour, or as we called them in New York then, witnesses. Occasionally, I might have to walk in Times Square itself, usually when it was daylight. What surrounded me there was about as far from today's Disneyland East Times Square as you could imagine. In fact, you could not imagine. There were porn theaters everywhere. And it wasn't just porn theaters. They were spaced apart, and in between them, other businesses existed. Porn peep shows, porn sex shops, and porn video rental stores. I remember always making sure I was walking on the outside edge of the street, nearest the gutter, on the premise that in the event somebody tried to mug me, I stood a much better chance by running right out into automobile traffic. Besides which, 
I used to worry that if I walked too close to the porn theaters and the shows and the shops and the video stores, one day I might just get stuck to the sidewalk. Times Square was so different in 1980 and 1981 that I really can't imagine that the annual income made there from anything but porn and the RKO radio network was more than $20 a year in total. There was nothing else. I mean, nothing. On weekends, walking over from my home on the east side, I would decide which fast food place I'd be getting lunch from. Somewhere on Fifth Avenue or Lex, I'd go to the nearest payphone, I'd call the RKO newsroom desk, and I would offer to bring in food for everybody for the simple reason that in Times Square, 40 years ago, there were no restaurants open on weekends. I'll say that again. In Times Square, 40 years ago, on the weekends, all the restaurants that existed there were closed during the day. And forget public transportation to Times Square. I would finish my brisk 25-minute walk to work one night in that frigid winter of 1980-81 and see my colleagues looking unusually pasty and drawn. You didn't take the subway in, did you? Asked one of the editors, Tom Ryan. I looked at him like it was crazy. Well, good. Some guy got stabbed by the stairs closest to our building. I asked if he was okay. No, he's not okay. He's dead. But they got the guys who did it. They arrested 51 people. One guy got stabbed to death. 51 people were arrested. I asked if they had been restaging a reenactment of the assassination of Julius Caesar. Still, the equipment was brand new and easy to use, and the staff was all young. We all had fun, and we had parties, and everybody lived in the city, and for the most part, it was a pleasure to work there. And it was way more lucrative even than Charlie Steiner had suggested. Those $22 voice reports from the field, they piled up fast. The baseball players went on strike that June 1981, and every time I covered a bargaining session, I could be certain of at least another $44, and if that doesn't sound like much... The rent on my very nice studio apartment never got higher than $498 a month. RKO's location also provided me with some wacky logistical problems. I filled in for Charlie on most holidays, plus I did the same thing at a local radio station, WNEW. This made the actual Christmas into my metaphorical Christmas. If I had to fill in for both of these operations on the same day, my schedule went like this. Get into RKO in Times Square at maybe 2 a.m. Tape Charlie's morning show by 4 a.m., then walk across town very quickly to WNEW over on 3rd Avenue and do those sportscasts live between 5.30 and 9 and then go home and maybe take a nap, but not a long one because I would have to be back at RKO by 1 p.m. to do Charlie's afternoon show. Rinse, repeat. A lot of work. On the other hand, just one week of those days paid the rent for two months. On a wet New Year's Eve 1981, I treated myself to a cab to go to RKO, which put me in the bizarre position of getting into a cab on the east side at 1.30 a.m. New Year's morning and saying, take me to Times Square. And the driver saying, you missed it, buddy. It's been 1982 for an hour and a half. Nothing like being the only person going into Times Square while one million people are leaving it. Drunk. Most of the sportscasts I did at RKO were pretty textbook, but there did come the day that I walked in to fill in for Charlie, who was at Wimbledon, so this is the summer of 1981, and the newswires were full of this story of some unnamed American radio reporter getting into a brawl with a London tabloid writer at a Wimbledon press conference, and it slowly evolved that the reporter was Charlie, my boss, and we were going to have to figure out a way to cover this. At first, Charlie wanted to do it in the third person and say, the reporter did this, and the reporter said that, and I said, you know, I really don't think we're going to get away with that. Given how much wire copy I'm seeing here, Charlie, this is probably going to be on the front page of the New York Times in the morning. Sure enough, it was above the fold. Worse still, unbeknownst to Charlie, his fight took place in a corner of the Wimbledon press room, right under the camera that fed out a shot of that room 24-7 to every television network in the world. 
Sure enough, the last item on ABC's 6.30 newscast that night with Peter Jennings was a feature on Charlie Steiner fighting with the British over how they broke up the John McEnroe post-match press conference, and he was pissed off because that meant he wouldn't get any sound bites from McEnroe. I managed to run home from RKO and record the report by Dick Schapp, and when Charlie got back from London, I loaned it to him. This was in July 1981. Charlie still hasn't given me the tape back. Every time I see him, he swears he's still looking for it. It's in a box somewhere. But I'm beginning to think he may not be telling me the whole truth about what happened to my video cassette. But my favorite RKO story is about Charlie's sudden and inexplicable obsession with the story during that 1981 baseball strike I mentioned. In the middle of this thing, which stopped the season for 50 days and was really, really the beginning of the end of that time when baseball truly mattered in this country. When every day of that strike, somebody on all the TV newscasts said, and the baseball strike is in its 23rd day, a story broke that George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees, was going to meet with baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn and a couple of other owners who realized that the work stoppage was financial madness. As George told me years later, he was losing about a million dollars in revenue every day so that the Milwaukee Brewers could save $5,000 in salaries every year. Well, my boss, Charlie Steiner, decided he was going to scoop the world about this secret Steinbrenner-Kuhn meeting, so he told me to come into the office on one of my off days and work the phones. Work the phones, son. Two of us, me and the newly hired producer, my friend John Martin, were supposed to call everybody we knew and find out for Charlie when these guys were meeting and where and who would be there and to not go home until we had nailed it down. Well, it was madness. I didn't know anybody in baseball, let alone anybody who knew where the owner of the Yankees was going to meet in secret with the commissioner of baseball, let alone who knew all that and would tell me. But I tried everybody I could think of and had already suggested to John Martin that I was just going to start dialing 10 digits at random and asking whoever answered if they knew when, after about eight hours of this, well past my dinner time, I was on the phone with some executive of some West Coast team when he said, hold on a minute, I've got another call. And a moment later, from the adjoining room in my office, I heard John Martin say, hey, Mr. Smith, hi, this is John Martin from the RKO Radio Network, and, uh, yes, RKO Radio Network. Yes, I'll hold, sir. Mr. Smith picked up my call again and said, is this really two of you calling me about this crap at the same time from the same network? And I said, yes, and I apologized, and I told him I was going home. If Charlie doesn't like it, I told John, he can fire me. So follow me on this. Because I had missed dinner, when I got back to my street on the east side, I was famished. I don't know, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock? The last two blocks of my walk home was always identical. I'd come up 3rd Avenue and then hang a right at the southeast corner of 3rd Avenue and 55th Street. I lived at the other end of 55th Street near 2nd Avenue. But now I was going to go pick up some pizza in a very nice place on the northwest corner of this same block. I got the slices, the lights changed, and now I was crossing towards the northeast corner of 55th and 3rd, which itself was the home of a famous New York bar, P.J. Clark's. Ordinarily, I would never have been on that side of the street at that hour, but there I was. And as I slipped past the ancient front door, I saw the side exit open and a burst of bright yellow light, like in an Edward Hopper painting, shoot out onto a limo waiting on 55th Street. And as I walked, carrying my box of pizza and wearing my RKO Radio Network black jacket, who emerges from that light of that side door at P.J. Clark's but George Steinbrenner in a tux? I gasped. I tried to summon the courage to approach Steinbrenner as he walked towards his limo and ask him about his planned meeting with Commissioner Kuhn. And just before I admitted to myself that no... At the age of 22, I did not have such courage. I saw Steinbrenner stop at the limo, and I heard him yell back towards the light shining through the still-open side door to Clark's. Eddie! Eddie! And with that, Edward Bennett Williams, the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, leaned out, also in a tux, and said with evident exasperation, 
What now, George? Steinbrenner shouted, What time are you and I and Childs meeting with Bowie tomorrow? I, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe my luck. Williams had not seen me. Steinbrenner had not seen me. Williams sighed again. For the tenth time, George. 9.30. 9.30 in the morning, George. 9.30. Bowie's condo. I now plastered myself against the wall of Clark's. I hoped they had not seen me at all. Without so much as asking the question, I had learned that the Orioles owner and Childs, Eddie Childs, the owner of the Texas Rangers, they would be accompanying Steinbrenner to the meeting, and it would begin at 9.30 at the condominium of Commissioner Bowie Kuhn. And I was wondering if I could try to fake Steinbrenner's voice and shout, Eddie, where is Bowie's condo again? When suddenly I heard Steinbrenner say, Eddie, where is Bowie's condo again? By now, Edward Bennett Williams had relit a cigar he was holding. George, write it down this time. 575 Park. 575. I could barely breathe. Good God, they had handed me everything but the cross street. Eddie, Eddie, what's the cross street? Williams now swore, oh, for F's sake, George, 63rd, 63rd and Park, 575 Park at 930 in the morning, okay? Steinbrenner got into the limo. It squealed off. The door closed. I wrote what I had heard on the top of the pizza box and took off at a dead run to my apartment at the corner of 55th and 2nd, pausing only to take a quick bite of pizza. I called John Martin back at the RKO Radio Network. I got it. John said, you got what? I got everything about the meeting. John said, I'll get the boss. Soon, all three of us were on the phone. Charlie did not believe I had gotten him any information, so I laid it on thick. You're writing this down, boss? 9.30 tomorrow morning. It's at Bowie Coon's condo at 575 Park. That's the corner of 63rd, of course. Then there was silence at Charlie's end of the phone. Oh, and... uh. Edward Bennett Williams of the Orioles and Eddie Childs of the Rangers, they'll be there too. I, I don't know, Charlie, if it's just them or there are others, but but those four will certainly be there. Bowie's condo, 575. Cross Street is 63rd. Charlie started to make a kind of butt, butt noise. But 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 how did you find out? How in the hell did you actually find out? Why do you think it's true? I had been waiting for this for several moments, and my answer had been rehearsed in my mind at least as far back as my elevator ride up to my apartment. With the most nonchalance I had ever mustered in my life, I answered Charlie Steiner. Well, Charlie, I, um, I ran into Steinbrenner at Clark's. As I mentioned earlier, slight change in formats today. I'm a little under the weather, so the rest of the show is reruns. If you want to bail out now, I will not hold it against you. I think I'll be fine tomorrow. It's just a nasal thing. But since we're on this topic of career highlights from the 1980s, the reason I am not now retiring after like 40 years as the top sportscaster in Boston television is contained in another saga, fulfilling that old saw about the anticipation being greater than the event. Much much greater. That's next. This is Countdown. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me... And things I promise not to tell. 38 years ago this week, I turned in my resignation at Channel 5 in Boston. I stayed there almost two months more at their request, but it still meant I had tried to get a job, the one there, for twice as long as I actually worked there. At Boston Red Sox spring training in 1983, a fellow named Bob Clark introduced himself as the sports producer at this Boston station and said they were all fans of my CNN work and that there would be a job opening that summer as sports anchor. And could he go to his bosses and say I was interested? And I said, sure. And in fact, if he wanted me to go with him to tell his bosses that or if he needed me to carry him to go tell his bosses that, I was ready. Things advanced so quickly that by Monday, July 18th, 1983, I found myself flying up from New York with my agent, and as Boston appeared out the window of the plane, she said, you will own this town. Not so much. Maybe later. I went out to the station's headquarters in a barren suburb called Needham and interviewed with everybody, sports producers, the news director, finally the general manager. Everybody beamed at me, and all was going great. Having laughed at several of my jokes and told me he loved my tape, the general manager, a man named Coppersmith, was about to usher me out of his office with a big hand on my shoulder when I made a terrible, terrible mistake. I told him we had met before when I was a TV intern and he was the general manager of his parent company station in New York. I remember him looking at me quizzically, and only later did I find out that all of his people had lied to him without telling me, and they had told him I was 28 years old. They did not tell me that since I was 24 years old. Coppersmith's last year at Channel 5 in New York had been 1978, and even giving me the benefit of the age doubt, he decided I was no longer anything older than 26 and ultimately, he thought that was too young to be a sports anchor in a major television market, back when those used to be important jobs that paid important money. Their sportscaster, since the station had gone on the air in the 1950s, had been an avuncular, pleasant, gifted man named Don Gillis, but he was cutting back, or they had decided to cut him back to special feature duty. The next day, back in New York City, I went out to find out if the Boston newspapers had found anything out about my surreptitious trip there. I went to a place so wonderful and now so impossible to explain to anybody. The out-of-town newspaper and magazine shop in the lobby of the Pan Am building adjacent to the Grand Central train station. 
This was one of the smaller of the out-of-town newsstands in New York. It carried about 200 different American newspapers, dozens more from around the world, and every imaginable international magazine was always packed. Its entire glory has been wiped out by the internet. Anyway, I bought the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald from the same day, and there it was on page 32 of the Globe, a headline over a feature by the TV sports columnist Jack Craig. Gillis departing soon? On horizon, Olbermann's credentials good. Young Keith Olbermann of Cable News Network, CNN, reportedly was very favorably interviewed at Channel 5 yesterday, possibly signaling the end of the Don Gillis era more quickly than anticipated. I was young then. But look, credentials good, it said in a headline. This was it, the start of my TV career for real. No more having to explain to doubting athletes, doubting colleagues, doubting relatives, doubting team executives that there really was a TV place called Cable News Network, parenthesis, CNN. Big money and big fame in one of the best sports cities in the nation. As even the Globe's article noted, there is a hitch. Olbermann's contract with CNN does not expire until next May, and whether he would be let out for Channel 5 is uncertain. Well, sure it was. But CNN would be nice guys about it, right? This was real TV, not some perpetual verge of bankruptcy cable thing. It was really just a big delusion by Ted Turner, and they needed eight cameras in New York, but they could only afford seven. So after being used in the field for 10 hours, one cameraman would have to lash his camera to a tripod for the wide shot shot for the nightly Sandy Freeman audio talk show. Even after the inevitable occurred one night and the overworked camera burst into flames on live TV, CNN would understand. (laughs) By the way, Sandy Freeman was replaced about a year later by Larry King. That's how long ago this actually was. Anyway, CNN's less than happy reaction to this was academic. I had unwittingly blown it when I revealed to that guy Coppersmith that I was not 28 years old. Sure enough, on August 15th, WCBB Channel 5 Boston announced the hiring of a Miami sportscaster named Lee Webb to succeed Don Gillis. Webb was a lot of things, and he wasn't a lot of other things, but hot damn, he was 30 years old, and that made him the man in the eyes of the general manager, Mr. Coppersmith. On the other hand, Coppersmith thought his station should still hire me. As a reporter, the news director, a man who went by the imposing name of Philip Scribner Balboni, offered me a spot as a feature news reporter. A producer and I would look for offbeat, unusual, unique stories and go cover them. It was not the sports anchor's job, but it wasn't CNN either. WCBB would also wait until CNN finally accepted that it was over between the two of us, whenever that was. Then three more things happened in quick succession. Channel 5 hired a new sports director, a producer who would run the department and set its editorial tone. His name was Mike Fernandes. And even after working with him for six months, the only thing I knew about him was that he had no sense of humor. He understood that I was making jokes, but he never got one of them. And his principal interest in sports was apparently determining which players were Don Juans, so he could refer to them endlessly in the office as, quote, swordsman. The second thing that happened was that the sports reporter at Channel 5, Bob Ryan, already very famous at the Boston Globe, later even more so nationally at ESPN, told management he just could not do both the TV and newspaper jobs anymore and he needed to quit. Mind you, this was how important sports was on local TV in Boston in 1983. They had an on-air sportscaster, a weekend sportscaster, a sportscaster emeritus, and an on-air sports reporter plus all the producers and the off-air sports director. Often the sports cast in the hour-long 6 o'clock news, and there was only the one hour of news, the sports cast lasted 10 minutes. So now, having already offered me the feature news reporting job, news director Philip Scribner Balboni offered me my choice of that job or Bob Ryan's sports reporting job. And while I was debating that, I managed to resist all efforts to turn me into a newsman for 15 years. While I was debating that, another Boston station suddenly jumped into the fray. Channel 7 was a perennial also-ran compared to Channel 5, whose newscasts were among the best, if not the best, in the country. Without as much as asking me to even come visit, Channel 7 offered me the job as its sports director, anchored the sports at 6 and 11, run the department, and get much more money than Channel 5 had offered me. 
and I turned it down out of loyalty to Channel 5 because they asked first. I turned it down, moron! Channel 5 was out in the, as I said, barren suburbs. Channel 7 was in downtown Boston. I would be making like 100000 a year at age 25 with no responsibilities, living and working in downtown Boston in 1984. Moron! So anyway, I get to Boston at the end of April 1984 at Channel 5. And on my first day out in the barren suburbs, I walk up a circular staircase to the sports department office and I hit my head on the staircase and bled so much they all thought I was going to need stitches. And I went back to the half a house I had moved to, one of exactly two rental properties in the entire town of Needham, Massachusetts, and I thought, what in the hell have I done? No, things improved. I was not just in the field. I did a lot of substitute anchoring, especially on weekends. And the first time I did that, Susan Warnick, one of our reporters and the wife of the big sportscaster in town, Bob Lobel from Channel 4. Susan came up to me in the office on Monday and gave me a big wet kiss on the lips and said, you were terrific. Lobel is scared crapless. I love you. The first time I did a live shot before a Celtics game at Boston Garden, I wandered around the arena without being recognized once. Two weeks later, I went back to the garden, and I went to get a hot dog, and turned to find a crowd of several dozen viewers all shouting at me in the singular language of the Boston sports fan. On Monday, June 11, 1984, Balboni, the news director, called me in and said he wanted me to start anchoring every night on the 11 o'clock news. Lee Webb would continue on the 6, but the intimation was... If it went the way he thought it was going to, I would get that show, too. But the problem was, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but occasionally I like to make jokes. Okay, I need to make jokes. And several of the executives at the station were real fans of the Red Sox and Celtics and Patriots and Bruins, and they did not like the jokes. Even if the viewers liked the jokes, they didn't. One day, I was supposed to go with a cameraman to shoot a piece in which I pretended to interview the Green Monster, the famed left field wall at Fenway Park. The punchline was, it would turn out the Green Monster didn't like baseball. Not a bad idea for 1984. Just as we're leaving the station, the sports director, Fernandes, said, change of plans, need you to go to Smithfield. That was where the football team held its training camp. Patriots just put their backup middle linebacker on waivers. Go get some sound. He didn't need any sound. The executives who didn't like my jokes had gotten the executive who didn't get my jokes to stop giving me the chance to do my jokes. It was an hour and a half to Smithfield. I was done for the day. I went home for a little trip to New York in early September, met with my agent, told her that after all the time and all the energy we had spent to get that job, this was the most impossible to imagine outcome, but it was the wrong station in the wrong suburb in the right town, and I didn't know how we could ever fix it. She agreed. She said I should go in and tell the news director I wanted to quit and that I'd stay as long as he needed me, but that if they weren't going to let me do the jokes, what was the point? I was an okay reporter. I was an okay sportscaster, but only with the jokes was I me. So September 10th, 1984, a Monday, the news director was not happy. He offered, in fact, to fire Lee Webb on the spot and give me the six o'clock show immediately, like that night, like lead Lee Webb out of the building that minute. But I told him that would mean he would be keeping somebody who wanted to leave and firing somebody who wanted to stay. He angrily agreed, and I became a secret lame duck, and I stayed on, getting fewer and fewer chances to be me, although they stuck to their end of it. They sent me to cover the World Series in San Diego and Detroit, where the guy next to me in the press box covering it for Channel 7, the place I should have gone to work, was their new sports reporter, a just-retired Red Sox Hall of Fame player named Carl Yastrzemski. I hit a ball over here, I hit a ball over there, I hit three balls over that roof. Then when I got back from the World Series, it happened. On Friday, October 19, 1984, that TV sports columnist from the Boston Globe, Jack Craig, called me up at home and told me Channel 5 was firing me because of bad ratings at 11 o'clock. I didn't have bad ratings at 11 o'clock. In fact, I had great ratings. And six weeks earlier, they'd offered me the 6 o'clock show as well. I hung up with Craig to call my agent, and instead of a dial tone, I heard the voice of the TV sports columnist from the Boston Herald, Jim Baker. 
I had answered his call before it rang. He told me Channel 5 was firing me and Lee Webb, so it could instead hire Ken the Hawk Harrelson, the former Red Sox star and TV announcer who had moved to Chicago. So now I call my agent and she says, your deal with Channel 5 is off. They want to make it look like you stink. They want to make it look like they just fired you. You call Jim Baker and Jack Craig right now and tell them the whole story. Wherever you go next, it has to be clear that you weren't fired. You quit and you stayed on because you're a pro. Which, you know, was true. So I called. I told both writers everything. And two minutes after I got off the phone with Jack Craig from the Globe, the phone rang and it was Jim Baker from the Herald calling back. And he says, you'll never believe this. Their negotiations with Hawk Harrelson are dead. Apparently, he wanted $400,000 a year and a guarantee that he only had to come in five minutes before each show to get makeup and then read the script that somebody else wrote. So you are now our lead story. Sure enough, back page of the Boston Herald, Saturday, October 20, 1984, above the masthead, Olbermann quits Channel 5. At the same hour, I was supposed to go to Morgantown, West Virginia, the place that was designed simply to make that lovely town of Needham, Massachusetts look like, I don't know, the Riviera. I was supposed to go to Morgantown to cover Doug Flutie and Boston College against the University of West Virginia. Since I lived... Between the television station and the airport, the cameraman was going to swing by my house to pick me up. Do it like 7 a.m. He never showed. By this point, I'm thinking, I just had to call my lying bosses liars in both Boston newspapers that are on every newsstand in the city and the surrounding area. Why am I going to race the clock to get to the airport on my own when this idiot cameraman forgot to come get me? When we had made the arrangements the day before, the cameraman had gotten my name wrong and called me Dick. At least that's why I thought he'd called me Dick. Anyway, uh, I was 25. I went back to bed. And while I was asleep, Channel 5 fired me from a job that I had not only quit, but I had quit twice, including on the front page of the newspapers that morning. The Channel 5 people were furious. I put up a brave front, but beneath the surface, I was a little scared until two more things happened. Before I could move back to New York, the news director, Phil Balboni, told Craig of the Globe that it was all too bad because, quote, Keith was potentially such a major talent. Ooh. And then the general manager, Coppersmith, was so angry that he told my agent he will never again work in this business. I am not a big believer in motivational quotes, but those two those really worked number one and two on my all-time list and as always beyond that there's a punchline in 2007 an email popped into my inbox at msnbc it was glowing and warm and lovely and it indicated the writer was a huge fan it was signed your old channel 5 news director phil balboni his email did not mention that i was potentially such a major talent I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections, such as this one here, which you rarely hear, have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music, when we play it, is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. It's written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. And we didn't have an announcer today, so I'm not going to credit him. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 800th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow, hoping for a full new episode after this little cold or whatever it is wanes. Thanks for bearing with me since I really couldn't read aloud today, which interferes with stuff. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Dealing with pests can be a pain. But relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.